Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. As we kick off the new year, I'm starting off with the first in a series on retirement. And if you're not at all near retiring, I still encourage you to listen because I think you're going to find this very helpful. The inspiration came from numerous interactions over the past year or so with those that I know and that I've met that are struggling in retirement for various reasons. At first, I thought it was just me, but as I started to openly discuss my own struggles, I learned that my own friends, peers, and coaching clients had their own challenges. This got me curious as I read more, explored topics on life transitions, identity, finding purpose and meaning, and spoke with more retirees, and I decided to share what I learned through a series of masterclasses on the subject through the podcast that will explore the pillars of a retiree-focused program that I'm working on, so stay tuned for live Q&A workshops with vetted participants, subject matter experts, and other retirees to dive deeper into some of these topics. I recently had the opportunity to work with my colleagues at Pause First, facilitating an eight-hour first responder retirement workshop. We collaborated with the Missouri Department of Mental Health and the Missouri Behavioral Health Council organizations dedicated to the well-being of first responders and their families. This event affirmed even more how important this work is. We spend so much time and effort preparing for our careers as first responders, but little to none as we exit the profession. And this gap really needs to be filled by education, support, and a platform for open and honest conversations. It was evident that those who attended our event were looking for one or all of these. This project has deep meaning for me since both my husband and I are retired law enforcement and neither one of us retired well, but it doesn't have to be like that. With a little preparation, we can leave better than when we came. The transition into retirement is complicated, even when it's planned, but when it's unexpected, such as a discipline issue or a medical retirement, that comes with a whole host of other issues. Each circumstance and person is unique, and each one of us enters retirement with a different level of resilience and support. Retirement, regardless of the profession, is wrought with issues of transition from the disruption of your daily routine, what you decide to wear for the day, how you spend your days, who you spend your days with, finding purpose, and because most first responders often over-identify with our careers, Transitioning out of police, fire, or dispatch culture into the civilian world can be a really big challenge. Unless we start planning to retire years, yes, I said years, prior, and we're proactive with our mental, physical, and relational wellness, we might find ourselves left with a mountain of unmanaged stress and trauma, health issues, and broken relationships. Without a solid exit plan, we can feel lost, vulnerable, and alone. In other words, if you fail to plan, plan to fail. And of course, I know this all too well. In fact, I crashed and burned, and I don't want anyone else to have to experience that. It isn't necessary. We all deserve to enjoy our retirement, whatever that looks like for us. By a solid exit plan, I mean covering all the pillars to set us up for a healthy second mountain. Let me take a minute and explain where this concept of second mountain came from. Years ago, I read a book by David Brooks called The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. The book is part manifesto, part memoir, as the author openly shares details of his own life, which he describes in terms of first and second mountain. In his first mountain, he's driven by ego and success, and he refers to himself as a workaholic and an overachiever, prioritizing time over people and productivity over relationships. 
In the second mountain, he prioritized joy over happiness and commitment to wonder, curiosity, love, and gratitude. He explains his interpretation of happiness versus joy and says that joy doesn't fade and happiness is fleeting and is based on accomplishments. His framework got me thinking about my own life and not just in terms of before and after retirement, but when I started to climb into my second mountain. Transition isn't just about retiring and it looks and feels different for each one of us. It can be a divorce, death of a loved one, empty nest, the call for something different, and it typically strikes sometime after we're 40. Most first responders are hardworking, overachieving, and have a servant's heart. It's why we chose our professions. Although our careers look different, some choose to work the streets, climb the ladder and promote, or focus on a specialty like homicide, gang, or narcotics. But I feel confident in saying that almost all of us have found meaning in our work. I'm not saying that we haven't been disgruntled or burnt out at times, especially at the end of our career, but what led to here and kept us there didn't change, but it might look different. Commitment to family, volunteering, starting a business, pursuing a passion, learning a new skill, traveling, a second career, and in my case, starting a podcast. Many of those who came to our retirement workshop stated on their evaluation forms that they were looking for ways to find meaning and purpose in their retirement. This can be a complex task, and many don't know where to begin, and that's why they were there. Unless you've thoughtfully prepared for this, you may not know. You might feel lost, like you're supposed to be doing something, but you just don't know what it is. I can't answer this for you. Each one of us is unique. Those I know have covered the spectrum on ways that they have retired. Rest and travel, full-time second career, entrepreneur, part-time work, whatever it is, remember, fail to plan, plan to fail. You can't prepare soon enough for retirement. Let me say that again. You cannot prepare soon enough for retirement. We spend so much time training our recruits for the job, but what resources do we actually provide for those that are exiting the profession? And I'm not just talking about financially. This is why we must become the hero of our own journey. Our careers as first responders have left many of us chronically stressed, working with a dysregulated nervous system and perhaps chronic inflammation. It can be difficult to have the energy or clarity to figure out what your purpose is if you're in this state. Those who retire right prioritize their health. To back up a bit, when we optimize our physiology with good habits, the mind will follow and align. As habits improve, our inflammation diminishes, and you transition from that survival, fight or flight mode to a thrive mode. The natural progression is that we crave a meaningful life, but it's hard to put the proverbial cart before the horse. If you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's a progressive model for human motivation. The first level has to do with adequate food, water, and sleep. The next level up is security and emotional regulation and safety. So without that good foundation for health and a regulated nervous system, the theory is that one can't continue to climb the ladder. Healing, learning, and creativity can't really happen in a state of dysregulation. So to find purpose, we must first dial in the first two rungs. Many retirees, including me, will say that it has taken years to relax, sleep better, and acclimate to civilian life. This is the first step in a healthy retirement and life. We have spent our careers living in survival mode for our stress response. The first pillar that I'm going to talk about is leadership. 
leadership's often associated with directing and inspiring other people. But in this framework, I'm going to focus on leading from within and taking radical responsibility for the circumstances of our own life. Take charge of our physical, mental, and emotional and spiritual well-being. In the paradigm of conscious leadership, we direct our attention to living above the line or more open, curious, and committed to growth. We begin with our ability to manage our nervous system and self-awareness. Our perception of stress or stressful stimuli creates a psychological and physiological response. Our mind and our body focus on combating the danger and the stress is constant. You get stuck there. You get stuck in that surveillance mode, that survival mode, and it becomes a maladaptive way of living. The key word here is perception. So even when the threat's gone, whether that's getting called into work, worrying you're going to miss the call, or the actual threat of harm while you're on the job, or relational issues with supervisors, colleagues, or family members, we're going to operate like this. And I know that I catch myself here often still to this day. Today, I'm going to share five signs that indicate that you might be stuck in this state. So if any of them sound familiar, you're not alone, and I'm going to offer some resources. So the first one is you're chronically stressed. Well, yeah, right. You might think this is obvious, but contrary to how many of us in this world operate, chronic stress isn't baseline. Even though for many of us, this could be where we are. Chronic dysregulation of the nervous system means that you're unable to access your parasympathetic state or that rest and digest and relax your nervous system on demand. You normalize stress. It becomes part of your personality. Part of this is your capacity to handle your stress. Where are you on this spectrum? Do you have mental real estate to prepare for adversity? Are you more reactive or impulsive? Do you tend to see the negative in situations? Do you have trouble relaxing or getting quality sleep? Do you have difficulty focusing? Do you wake up exhausted? Forget more easily. Are you easily distracted? Do you have compromised immunity or do you get sick a lot? You may also be more defensive, which is a sign that you're living in fear. You're less open to feedback. You might have a strong attachment to always being right. When everything in your life feels high risk, regardless of what it is, and equally important, you fear failure, rejection, and you don't have the clarity to discern the difference. If you answered yes to any of these questions, it's worth a closer look. One way that I do this is through a practice of self-inquiry or journaling. I write it out. It gives us a different way of evaluating what might be working and what isn't. Okay, so number two, you live in a state of urgency. This is something that I still deal with and battle every single day. Do you always have the feeling like you're going to be five minutes late or that you don't have enough time? Even when you're sitting down and you're at your desk, you feel like there's a time crunch. Are you overscheduled? Do you cancel or reschedule a lot? Unable to keep commitments due to overwhelm? In urgency, it's hard to plan ahead because you're living one day at a time. I find myself here a lot. And even if I'm sitting at my computer just working on a project and I have nothing pressing, I still will feel that familiar feeling of I need to hurry to get something done. It creeps in from time to time and I have to remind myself to slow down. My go-to is a few rounds of belly breathing, getting out of my head and engaging in my parasympathetic nervous system down regulates my nervous system. And I'm setting myself up to lead from a place of calm instead of chaos or frenzy. 
Number three, you isolate or disconnect to protect. Many of us have operated like this as we went through our careers, and it's a result of shutting off emotion or feelings that arise. And sometimes we do it on purpose, but sometimes we don't realize that we're doing this. But the result is the same. If we continuously live on autopilot and we disconnect, show up as we're expected, we aren't allowing ourselves to really be seen, and we aren't acknowledging those things that have bothered us or in some cases have haunted us. As a result, we're incapable of connection. We aren't wired this way as human beings. So if this sounds familiar, create safety for yourself and space to feel, whether this be with a professional, a peer, or a family member. Number four, the way that you typically cope just isn't working for you or your mental health has declined. And number five, you feel stuck. One of my mentors likes to say you need to reach out when you tweak out. So consider ahead of time who you might reach out to. The importance of a supportive community is crucial to our success here. My best advice is don't go it alone. Be honest with yourself here and maybe review some of these questions. Number one, am I chronically stressed? Number two, do I have difficulty relaxing? Number three, do I get sick a lot? Number four, is it hard for me to focus? Five, do I have trouble sleeping? Six, do I lack energy in the morning? Seven, do I always feel rushed? Eight, do I feel stuck? Nine, do I have a support system? And 10, how do I cope under stress? It's unrealistic to expect that you can heal, learn, be creative, or determine something as important as your purpose when baseline's out of whack. Chances are that in a first responder profession, it's been this way for a while. I'm going to share some tools that you can try that cover all areas of the spectrum to help regulate your nervous system. These are tools that are evidence-based, but also don't work for everyone. So try them on, see what sticks, and discard what doesn't work. But first, if you're struggling in any way, it might be a great first step to talk to a therapist. I realize how difficult that this can be, especially for first responders. There's still a stigma attached. We don't like to talk about things like feelings, emotions, stress, and trauma. And we have gotten through, most of us at least, our careers with avoiding these things and really poor coping mechanisms. But I promise it's going to rear its ugly head one way or another if we don't deal with it. If this seems daunting, find someone, a peer, a family member, call a hotline. There's so many great resources that are out there that can assist you in finding a culturally competent therapist, and I'm going to list some in the show notes. Okay, so here are some tools that I suggest. Number one, practice emotional hygiene. I first heard this term after hearing Guy Winch's TED Talk. He's a psychologist that studies loneliness, rejection, and failure, and self-esteem, and how these experiences create a deep psychological wound that can distort our perception of reality and confuse our thinking to make us believe that those around us care much less about us than they actually do. This feeling of disconnection from those around us is often referred to as loneliness, and research studies have shown that it can be as detrimental to our health as smoking can decrease our lifespan by 14%, suppress our immunity, and is linked to high blood pressure. So what is loneliness exactly? When we think of a state of being alone without being lonely, that's solitude, a form of self-care that promotes self-awareness and leaves you replenished and connected. 
Connection doesn't just refer to others. It also refers to connecting with ourselves. Loneliness is a subjective feeling, but you can feel emotionally and socially disconnected even when when you're surrounded by people, friends, family, and coworkers. And when we isolate, we're avoiding being around others altogether. Prioritizing emotional hygiene, just as we would our personal hygiene, brushing our teeth, bathing, etc., can really help to build our emotional resilience so that we can thrive. Studies show when self-esteem is low, perhaps when we've experienced failure or rejection, we're more vulnerable to stress and anxiety, and it can take us longer to recover unless we take action. So what can we do? The first step to any of this is awareness. I think about how helpful this could have been knowing this growing up and how much better off my kids are for knowing these things now. Do something to help renew your self-esteem and practice fierce self-compassion. Talk to yourself exactly the way that you would to a family member or a close friend. And I realize this can be easier said than done, but one of the most harmful psychological habits is rumination. I know this all too well. I would get ate up for months sometimes for different reasons, ranging from work to personal relationship issues. When we ruminate, we can't stop replaying the things in our head. These thoughts become habits that can lead to depression, health issues, and poor coping, such as drinking too much. One thing I've started to do since becoming aware of my rumination habit is to force myself to think about something else. Easier said than done, but it works. If we can practice emotional hygiene by taking action when we are lonely and changing how we view failure so it inspires instead of constrains us, One of my mentors taught me that FAIL stands for First Attempt at Learning, and this is coming from a recovering perfectionist. I can say that I don't love failing, but I'm much better better at it than I I used to be. And finally, if we can practice frequent self-esteem boosts, we can help ourselves heal and thrive, and again, we're building our emotional resilience. Number two, couldn't leave this one out, meditation and yoga. I'm including links to some of my favorite videos for you to try in the show notes. These practices have been proven to improve mood, cognitive function, build resilience, and fortify our mental health. Number three, go outside and walk. Again, seems really easy, but do we actually do this? Being out in nature and moving your body are beneficial to the nervous system. Sometimes a change of scenery, fresh air, and movement can shift us from stress to ease. This is a great option for those who may not feel ready to sit in meditation or try yoga. Number four, get cold. This has become a fast favorite of mine. Depending on your medical history, I recommend speaking with your doctor, but for those in decent health, intentional cold exposure, whether that be through cold showers, cold plunging, or walking in the cold, positively stresses your nervous system and tones the vagus nerve. That's the nerve that activates the parasympathetic nervous system. Breathing, yoga, meditation, and laughter also tone the vagus nerve, so go have fun. Go for a walk in the cold with a friend and check off a few boxes. Number five, tap. EFT tapping, or the emotional freedom technique, is an active type of meditation and has been proven to decrease cortisol, one of the hormones that's released during the stress response. It's simple and entails tapping on certain points of the body or acupressure. It's based on the principles of Chinese medicine and acupuncture and psychology. I'm including a link to a free tapping app that I like to use. If you have any questions about any of the the things that I've talked about or anything that I covered, please feel free to reach out. 
Next time, we're going to continue with a pillar of inner leadership and how this leads to a retiree's success. Our capacity to change decreases as we age. So there is truth in the adage that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but we do know that it's not impossible with a little bit of intention, support, and guidance. You can absolutely create or recreate your identity if that's what you want to do. Letting go of your pre-retirement identity, the narrative that you tell yourself, adapting to a new lifestyle, it's all possible with a solid foundation, which all starts with nervous system regulation. As always, if you found value in this episode, please share with someone you think might find value and then give us a review. I want to hear from you. Where are you with your retirement journey? What are you looking forward to? And what do you want to learn more about? Happy New Year and remember, we are better together. 